Welcome to Plain Talk. Plain Talk has a new podcast every two weeks with up-to-date information about aviation technologies for general and business aviation. From home to cockpit to boardroom to personal tech, Plain Talk provides informative information for pilots, industry insiders, and aviation enthusiasts alike. My name is Phil Lightstone. I'm a general aviation pilot with over 1,900 hours in my logbook, flying almost every week with over 30 years experience in the technology and aviation industries. Well, I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the Plane Talk cockpit, Sean Nielsen, CEO of a company I'm sure you've all heard of, Cirrus Aircraft, who manufacture very, very cool airplanes. Uh, Welcome, Sean. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I spent some time looking at uh, your bio. It's very impressive, to say the least, and you're at working for just a wonderful aerospace company. Thank you. And I, I was just curious, what attracted you to join Cirrus in 2019? Um, oh, many things. You know, so I, I grew up uh, in a small time, uh, town in, in Denmark, and uh, our farm um, bordered a small airport. And so every, you know, every morning I would go running. I played, you know, competitive soccer. So I would try to stay in shape and I would go run every morning and, uh, or evening. And uh, on that small airport, it would be, you know, gliders, 172, Cessnas and so forth. And I was just sort of smitten by it, you know, to see these things, you know, uh, you know take off and land, you know, all the time. And, and when I was nine, um, I was fortunate enough to go have my first flight. Uh, so every year they would... They would uh, sort of uh, have a an appreciation for all their neighbors that was sort of um, you know had to deal with the noise and so forth. And I uh, elected to go fly in a glider. Um, oh wow! So that was my first actual flight. Not, and, nine yeah, years nine, old. Yeah, but I obviously I didn't handle the controls, but I sat in the back. And it was one of those where they pull you up um, on the ground and you literally just vertically t- you know almost shoot up. And I was just taken by it. Um, so I've always had a fascination for flying. And being in that world, uh, but never had the tr- sort of the opportunity to get into it. Sure. Um, the big company, you know, to work for in Denmark at the time was Bang and & Olufsen and, right. and um, Lego and some of those iconic companies. And so I went into, uh, got my apprenticeship at, at Bang and & Olufsen and it sort of, sort of just took me the next 17 years, you know, to, uh, to get to the U.S. And I ran the North American and South American operation as president for, for seven years before I joined Tesla. Wow. So quite a... Uh, technology career yeah I mean I uh, it's always been about for me about producing something that has uh, value right rather than like you, you hear so much today about people making you know fortunes on Bitcoin and speculations on stock and real estate and and I I've always sort of grown up in a in a culture where you have to build something you should you know build something that has long-lasting value or make you know somebody's life better or enrich them in in, in in some capacity and music for, you know, for what's the thing for, of course, for Bang & Olufsen, electric uh, cars was sort of a big, you know, change in, in an industry for, for the cars, right? And, and airplanes, you know, bring people together. Right? They it, sure it, do. It, 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 uh, it connects the world. So, you know, with coming over to Cirrus in 2019, have you transplanted any of that DNA from uh, Bang & Olufsen and Tesla? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, both companies, um, are, it's very much around design 
um, but with, with a purpose, right? It has to be high quality, you know, high craftsmanship. Safety is, is pinnacle to all of it, right? You can't have a television, you know, catching fire or a car, you know, crashing. Um, and, and obviously the same applies to, to airplanes. But they, they, it starts with safety in mind. Well, of course, safety is paramount in the aviation yeah. game. It's yeah. not like we can kind of get out and pull over. And oh, exactly. Yeah. So there's just a lot of par- parallels um, from the lo- sort of the lifestyle aspect of it, the you know building something that's hard to, sure. to build and manufacture, to the full ecosystem of once you have you know sold the airplane, it really needs a home you know to come out into. So it's not an orphan out in, in the world in that sense which means that you have to build the service network, the parts distribution, the AOG support, you know, the aftermarket upgrades, the all the things that sort of training, training you know, that come with the airplane um, in ownership, which all it starts actually all a, a few steps before that, which is learning how to fly, right? Um, and I don't know if you know this, but about 90% of people that start their private pilot license never finish it. Um, eventually you're going to run out of customers to sell to, right? If you can't create a bigger pie. Um, so so we, we really spend a lot of energy on how do you make it easier to fly and how do you make it sure. easier to learn how to fly and how do you make it easier to own and operate an aircraft, right? If you can make all those things easier, then more people are going to come into you know, aviation, which is really what it's all about. Easier and safer. Yep. yep. I, I can uh, attest, I have a friend of mine owned a, an SR-22, Okay. High IFR, he had a bit of a challenge. 800 feet AGL, he pulled the parachute, saved uh, saved his life, his wife's life. Good. The under parachute uh, landed on the ground. No injuries other than the sadly the yeah. airplane hit a fence. Yeah, okay. A fence. These things. Well, the be. airplanes become sort of the shock uh, shock absorption, but it it. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a fantastic um, safety feature that our founders at the time, uh, the Club Myers, decided to put in. Right, and it comes with a lot of trade-offs. Like you, you could have you know put in a couple hundred pounds of fuel or an extra passenger, but they they decided that that was so important in in, in this journey of changing aviation. I mean, the journey that your founders have taken it's absolutely phenomenal. Yep. Really, they've done things that just other folks haven't done. It's absolutely amazing. With that said, I'm uh, a little curious about the electrification of certified sure. uh, aircraft. And are we going to see like an E-SR-22 or a, an E-Track uh, anytime soon on the uh, horizon? Not, not anytime soon. Um, I, I mean, promise I won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, right. It's just going to be between <laughs> me, me yeah. and you. Uh, no, not anytime soon. Um, and, and so why, why is that? Um, well, first of all, the power density is just not there yet. And so the technology and batteries is just not there yet. Um, obviously it's super heavy. The, I think sort of average flight time is 20, 30 minutes with no reserves, you know, that you know, uh, some of the other players in the industry have been able to get out uh, of it, which doesn't really do, you can't even do a flight training lesson with that, right? So, so uh, and our customers, the, type, the, the missions that they use the airplane for, it's five, six, seven, eight hundred mile, uh, you know, flights. So, uh, what we need to do, the missions that our customers are, are trying to fulfill, simply right now cannot be done uh, with, with electric. So that's one. Number two is the uh, cycles, you know, that a battery can can handle. Right? Uh, let's just make make up a number for argument's sake. Let's say it's a thousand cycles. Um, 
and, and, it, and cycles, you know, let's call them 20, 30 minutes. You know, you, and it, you divide that up into a thousand. It's really, you, you it's would have to. It's very expensive. It's very expensive. You would have to replace the battery uh, on, in an unusual amount of time. Uh, so it's it's just not um, economic right now, right? And, and the mission you can fulfill is not right. What do you think about the the future of hydrogen? I think it's challenging for a lot of reasons. Uh, you have to have again, and it is with any sort of alternative fuel, right? Because having having gone through this at, at Tesla, we spent billions of dollars building out the charging infrastructure. Course. And that's very predictable. It's you, you put it next to highways where you know cars are, are coming and so forth. But let's say an, an airplane uh, was hydrogen or or um, battery driven. If you have to deviate to another airport because of weather or whatnot, and there's there's no fuel there, like there's no hydrogen system there or whatever, it, it's just um, it's it becomes very expensive to build up that infrastructure. And until the industry and the governments, not just the U.S. but YASA and all the other international um, you know setups agree on a standard it's very difficult for the OEMs to take a bet and, and risk on one technology over the other I think the next step that the, the, that the industry will go through is to remove uh, uh, lead from from the fuel right there's a big initiative with uh, Eagle uh, and gamma and, and the FAA going on right now to uh, come up with a plan where we collectively can invent a new fuel type that's a drop-in replacement um, you know, to the leaded, um, you know, 100 uh, octane that we, that we use now. And then, you know, somebody has to invent it, somebody has to refine it and distri- distribute it, and then all the engines have to be recertified to, to use it and so forth. So there's a lot of work ahead of us, but I think that's the first hurdle. Like, let's get lead out of the fuel, and then figure out how do we go to the, uh, the next, next green step uh, on the journey. I've been following fungible fuel plants. There's a, a yeah. few beta uh, fuel plants in uh, in Canada yep. with the idea of taking carbon emissions out of the air, yep. uh, applying uh, green energy to it and manufacturing any kind of fuel you want, yep. hopefully uh, unleaded uh, yep. 100 UL, yep. for lack of a, a better word. And then uh, I, th- I see a, a nirvana of uh, little micro plants at every airport getting rid of the the complete supply chain yeah and I, I if I had a crystal ball you know we would make a bet but but right now so I think the the, the, the VTOL industry the vertical takeoff and, and, and landing obviously are, are making a bet on electric I think the big commercial you know players are making several bets right and hydrogen is, is one of them but they also have very predictable point to point right they, there's an, a big airport where they control the fuel and and, and they can be more adventurous, so to speak, with those uh, technologies. So I think they will mature and, and, and narrow the, the choices. And then once, once uh, you know, th- that has been ironed out, the smaller players in the industry like us, even though we're not that small anymore, but we, we can make a more predictable bet. So it's really an evolution yeah. rather than a yeah. jump start overnight. Yeah. So what's the biggest change that you uh, that you see at Cirrus? Um, it's, it's interesting because when you're in it you're making lots of small changes right so for you it doesn't feel like you know big changes but for somebody looking in from the outside it probably seems like big leaps you know forward but you know three years ago we were 
two and a half locations, let's call it that. You know, we were Brent Forks and, and Duluth was in place and we're building out Knoxville. Well, today we've got six, seven, eight locations almost. Um, you know, we've, we've added McKinney uh, in Dallas with a, uh, with a factory direct service and, and, um, and, and flight. We have an R&D facility uh, in McKinney also. We've added flight training and repair in Kissimmee, Florida. Uh, we have an R&D facility in Phoenix, and we also have a flight training operation in Phoenix now. Uh, we've acquired, um, you know, a, a small paint facility in Benton Harbor, uh, previously na- uh, called uh, Flying Colors. So we're just expanding quite a bit uh, over the last, uh, um, you know, three years. In fact, we're spending almost ten times as much in what's called capex and intangibles. Uh, compared to what we were spending in 2018 pre-pandemic, wow. that's that's so, a huge so jump. Huge jump, right? Um, and that also goes into the evolution of product. Obviously, we launched last year the G2 Plus for the Vision Jet. You know, adding on Wi-Fi and hot and high, so you can get out of um, you know um, shorter runways at, at high and, and, and uh, hot conditions. So we're constantly doing uh, what I call base hits. They don't all have to be home runs, right? Like, but lots of base hits get you around the plates, you know, and, and scoring, you know, just as efficiently sometimes. So we're doing a lot of things like that, that just a higher pace of uh, innovation, but, but sometimes smaller bites. Yeah. So Cirrus's foundations has always been about innovation, quality, and safety. Yeah. Any new safety features on the horizon? Uh, yes, in, in the sense that so Cirrus IQ, which is this box we, we put on the uh, SR series in 2020, essentially is this little sort of black box, if you will, that you can turn on remotely and wake up the plane and see your fuel and your oxygen level and you know how much uh, TKI fluid or TKS fluid you, you've got on. And so it's helping you, you know, pre-flight, if you will. But at the same time, when you touch down, all the data from that flight is is, uh, is ported over to a data warehouse, so we can, uh, uh, with the co- with the pilot's permission, uh, help them with training, with uh, insurance, with a whole and preventative maintenance, and a bunch of other safety related uh, features. So a good example is when you touch down and it's weight on wheels, all this data is offloaded, and we immediately can see how much of the runway did the did the pilot chew up before they touch down. Are they landing? On the center line, or five feet left of the center line, what was the approach speed and the and the, and the angle of attack? You know, as as uh, um, per the training manual. And if it's not, we can essentially send you a scorecard that hey, this is how you did, right? You instead of three percent, you know, uh, angle of attack, you came in at five, and you were like 10, 10, 10 knots fast, like, and all these things, and sends you essentially a voucher to go train with your local CSIP and say hey, you know, you have these sort of uh, areas of improvement the first hour is on us you know go train right to make them a, a safer pilot right so and so that's one element of like safety features like that the the, the box is already on board now we got to utilize the data for something meaningful right so are you looking at i mean as you uh, described that uh, uh, that connected ecosystem yep. data flowing into your back end are you doing any artificial intelligence on that data and then moving to the next step with real-time satellite communications cellular from our friends at gogo flight as an example doing in cockpit predictive real-time 
you know, essentially a virtual flight instructor. The possibilities in the future are sort of endless, right? It starts with getting the aircraft connected. You know, so right now we've got the aircraft on the SR, you know, connected with Sirius IQ. And on the jet, we have Wi-Fi, but no Sirius IQ on it yet. In the future, obviously, we, we're, we're going to try and find a way to, to connect the aircraft, right? Sort of in flight. Um, and then once you have that, you have, you know, those sort of capabilities. But that's still, you know, still far out in, in, in the future. The first thing we got to do is begin to learn, right? So now the data is coming off the SR. Now we got to figure out how do we uh, turn that data into useful um, content for you, the owner. Right? We will get some useful content in terms of warranty and, you know, preventative maintenance and predictive maintenance. But it's really about, like, how can we turn that into benefits to you? As, a, as an owner. Well, no doubt uh, the Nirvana is, you know, digital cockpit, connected cockpit, uh, cloud, uh, artificial intelligence, and uh, predictive, yeah. reactive uh, yeah, I mean, analytics. So, so safe return on the jet, right, is an example of essentially an, an autonomous airplane, right? I mean, the, the, once you push that button, the plane is making decisions on its own without being connected to the ground, right? And, and uh, so, so in many ways, the technology is already there. We now need other functions, you know, like the FAA and so forth to uh, uh, educate themselves so they can allow it to be used for non-emergency uh, procedures, right? You can, you can imagine a scenario in the future where, let's say, it's not an emergency, but there's a lot of crosswind and you just need a little help, right? And you might, you, you might need some landing assist, right? Without it declaring an emergency, you might want to push a button that gives you some some help. That like, virtual right? yeah. instructor. In yeah, the, yeah. So uh, we're not there. We're not there yet. But getting these technologies in place, right, allows us to take the next step in that journey. So I think uh, you know. I think you said something quite interesting, which is that technically the technology is there. Yeah. It's about you know your role as an evangelist to the regulators, yeah. both the FAA and Transport and EASA to uh, help them with the journey to certification. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's certainly a part of that, and that's, that's a, uh, a, a partnership, right? And we, all, we all work with the FAA, trying to, to bring more people into aviation, make safer airplanes and so forth. I'm sure that the VTOL industry will help a lot in that you know, direction, because they're certainly pushing on the technology side, and less so the, the actual you know, aircraft side. But um, I think, as an industry, uh, we, we're all moving in that direction of how do we bring more people into aviation. So the appetite of business aviation for jets just seems to be uh, unstoppable. Is there a larger vision jet, i.e. maybe a Mark II on the drawing board? And I promise I won't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, no, not right now. Uh, I mean, there's we have a backlog of uh, more than 400 vision jets right now, so essentially everything we can produce the next three to four years is already on order. Uh, so what we're focused on is continuing to innovate on that, on that platform, bring more features and benefits out to both the existing you know, owners and whenever possible retrofit them. Like so, uh, um, you know, the hot and high feature and, and Wi-Fi is, you know, retrofitable uh, features. So we're trying to make sure that we take good care of the customers that own the air- airplanes now, but, and, and, take care of the customers that are waiting on taking delivery, right? So, so uh, will there one day be, you know, uh, more airplanes in the portfolio? Sure. I mean, that's, that's uh, 
you can't grow unless you add product, you know, over time. So, so, um, but whether or not that's a, a different platform or, uh, you know, a, a different jet, uh, it, it's time will tell. So, as the CEO, how do you manage the culture of change R and D under a backdrop of a, a regulator who traditionally might not go as fast as you would like them to go? Yeah, I mean, uh, we have to remember they, why they are not wanting to go as fast as we would like them to. It's always always with safety in mind, right? And safety is not for sale. And it's 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 good that you know the FAA sometimes you know says hey, you know let's let's make sure it works and like let's you know uh, you know cross the, the the T's and dot the I's. So they're there actually to help, right? They're not there to prevent you. Um, so it's it's all about creating a good relationship to the FAA, educating them. Because obviously we're the expert in our platform. It's impossible for the FAA to be experts in every single platform that is served up to them, right? So I, I really consider it a um, an industry partnership, um, and yes, you know the industry wants to go faster than the FAA, but but you know that's that's evolution. Just because sometimes you can doesn't mean you should do something, right? Um, and if we always start out with safety for you know safety as the core driver of everything we do, and then figure out okay, you know why do we want to do it? A lot of the VTOL, you know, the vertical takeoff landing, I don't fully understand the use case. Like as an example, if all you can fly right now is 20 to 30 minutes, and, and all you can do is hop from, I don't know, Walnut Creek to San Francisco uh, airport, right? And, and you still have to go to a helipad, you know, in Walnut Creek to fly over to a helipad, uh, you know, outside San Francisco airport, because obviously they're not going to let you zip in, in in the middle of airline traffic you know coming down what what's the benefit like you would have to drive to the helipad park wait for your flight fly over and and my assumption is that these helipads can't be that big right so you have to wait your turn so now you're hovering there running out of juice and then you have to land and then get in some sort of vehicle to get to the airport i i, I just don't understand the use case just now right uh, i live in uh, uh in toronto yeah. And, uh, you know, my, historically my commute was maybe 20 kilometers yeah. and uh, based upon a very old, archaic uh, highway system yeah. in traffic that's continually yeah. growing, uh, it could be an hour to an hour and a half. Yeah. Yet uh, in a, uh, an eVTOL that could perhaps be 10 minutes. If you can land where you want to land. And I think that's right. back to the developers who own shopping centers who yeah. are repurposing uh, and creating uh, urban air mobility hubs yeah. uh, let's think of them as big train station yep. the train stations from the steam yeah, there's no there's no doubt that eventually it'll be all be worked out right um, there's going to be you know helipads or landing spots and so forth but i just don't think we're there right now right? we still need more uh, autonomous features to be in, you know, to be developed. Sure. We still need battery to be, uh, you know, developed. We still need thousands and thousands of charging stations to be available. And everybody has to agree on a format so that when you, you know, just like Tesla, right, you can't, in a BMW, pull up and use a Tesla charging station, right? So there's so many things that has to be organized before vertical takeoff and landing can really be as uh, uh, give you the freedom you, you, you're talking about. 
um, it's still very much point to point. So I think what will happen first is things like freight or package delivery, mm-hmm. you know, where there's not a person on board uh, in rural areas where you're not zipping in over the cities um, would definitely be, I think would be first. Then medical transportation, because it, it's an emergency, maybe organ donors and things like that. Um, and, and so there'll be probably a decade of working out all the logistical problems and the, and the technical issues before people start flying. And right. like, there's the next gen airspace uh, nav yep. systems. Yep. Uh, there's a lot. I think you're absolutely right. Yep. There's a lot of work to do. But I, I think we can perhaps all see the end game. Oh, there's no doubt that it's coming. There's, there's no doubt that it's coming. Right. But in terms of what we need to focus on right now as a Cirrus, um, our focus is in sort of the, the, the five to ten year you know, horizon. Right? Yeah. So, Sean, if there was just one thing that you could change today, what, what would that be? I mean, I, we're pretty happy with, with how things are going. We've added 400 people to the company last year, and we're planning to add another 400 people this year. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to balance scaling and, you know, reducing the backlog because the backlog is too, too large right now. I mean, that sounds weird to say that, but it's, it's, um, it's two and a half year wait for a propeller airplane and, you know, north of two to three years for the, for the jet. So we'd like that to be shorter. So we need to scale manufacturing. So we need more people, uh, to be part of that, part of that journey. Um, but we also need to scale the services around so these airplanes co- co- come out into a world where they can be looked after from training perspective, service perspective. So it's really about how to manage that that, uh, that scaling of the business, right? Without risking the business, like by scaling too fast, right? And it's always the right quality, the right safety first, and then we'll scale as fast as we can. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you coming into the Plane Talk sure. cockpit. Uh, any final words for the audience? No, I think we, I mean, we, we talked about a lot today, but uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for your time and, and including us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Plane Talk. If you have any ideas for a future Plane Talk episode, please go to the Contact Us page at plaintalk.ca and send in your idea. Don't forget to like us at plaintalk.ca, our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, and this podcast. And never stop living the dream.